Hey, so Jordan, it's good to it's good to reconnect with you. Um, happy to be podcasting with you again. As you know, um, as a Canadian, I've been for the last couple of weeks in a period of mandatory mourning for uh, the Queen. Yeah, that was tough for you. Yeah, it was. It was, it was tough the, for me, and yeah. Just the reactions I, I got from you and, and DMs about how you were yeah. just you beside know, myself breaking apart at the seams over this, the, the, the passing yep. of the queen someone i know you you admired and looked up yep. to immensely that's correct um, yeah i'm really i'm really sorry it's okay yeah it's uh it's been a tough uh, period of adjustment um and as you know all canadians like i've not been able to you know we've not been allowed to, legally we are legally mandated not to work not to podcast not to live stream mm-hmm. i've been driving a car i've been turning on my oven answering the phone all the grocery stores are closed. You know, it's actually good that this period is coming to an end because it's, it was getting really slim pickings, uh, you know. So I was down at the, yeah. the water in the top of the toilet tank. They shut that <laughs> off as well. They shut it oh, off, all no. the utilities. Yeah. This is how seriously we're taking this. But prayers um, up for the queen and her family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, in solidarity, I tried to <laughs> take that time off as well. And I, when I talked to my work, they uh, they didn't understand the significance and denied my time off. So that That's wasn't going to let that stop me. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to let that stop me. So I I knew what needed to be done, and I went out and I got COVID. So nice. Uh, I just, I'm just That's getting over COVID. Yeah, yeah. So then, and then I had to have that you time beat the off. system. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Final How was that? Pole. Yeah. <laughs> was it as miserable? Because I just had it a few weeks ago. Was it as miserable for you as it was uh, as it was for me? How, how did that go? I mean, like I don't want to minimize it because it definitely sucks. But I'm just really glad the new variants are like I guess less of an attack on your lungs. That's when I really go nuts. Um, yeah. So mine was just like a really bad uh, head cold and congestion. And a really dry cough with a splitting headache for like four days, um, but uh, and and some just exhaustion and decreased appetite. But how's the sweating? I'm just really glad. Uh, I sweat all the time. What do you mean? Okay, just generally just moist. <laughs> I'm just always yeah. sweating. Yeah, okay. I, it's just like a mix of. Um, I see. Like riding my bike a lot and going to the gym a lot and all and being a. Uh, a year-round hoodie guy it's just uh sure yeah i'm always sweating so i I didn't really notice a difference there was that a thing for you oh yeah yeah just lying in bed um just being like boiling hot but then the moment you take off the cover ever so slightly be freezing cold and also just like dripping with sweat constantly through the whole evening not Mm -hmm. it was not good it was not a good situation unpleasant yeah and then i got covid after no but but oh seriously boy. but seriously folks um <laughs> anyway it's i'm glad that we're uh, that we're back podcasting um you know we missed we missed the loyal insurgents audience over the last couple of weeks and uh do you want to just introduce our guest hunter walker yes hunter walker is a reporter he used to be the White House correspondent for Yahoo News. Now I think he's freelance, but writes a lot for Rolling Stone and a few other outlets. And he's written a lot about, you know, the Trump administration throughout the years, throughout the entire tenure. And then also January 6th and the fallout from that, because he was 
at the Capitol on January 6th and then has covered all of the developments since then. He has a new book out that just came out this week called The Breach that he wrote with former member of Congress Denver Riggleman. And we get into the book, some of the more shocking things that he found that the committee hasn't even at least revealed, maybe not even found, that show some pretty crazy and alarming links between the rioters and the White House. We get into that. And also, while we were recording, uh, Hunter is a you know lifelong New Yorker and a huge Yankees fan. Aaron Judge hits his 61st home run, tying Roger Maris's record during the recording. So you get Hunter's History. live reaction, yeah. which was pretty fun. It was very fun. It was a great conversation. Um, before we get to Hunter, just remind everyone to head on over to theinsurgents.substack.com uh, to become a subscriber of the Insurgents podcast. Make sure you get the back catalog of all the amazing um, bonus episodes we've done uh, over the over the the last couple of months and years now. I guess highly recommend that people do that. Do, do we need to plug anything else, or do you think we're ready to? Uh, Ready no, to just, bring yeah, just become a paid intern uh, a paid of the insurgents. Yeah. At the com. The paid internship program. You can put that on your resume, hmm. your LinkedIn. That's yep. going to open up all kinds of opportunities for you. But, you know, don't, you know, do what you want. It's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, let's get to uh, let's get to our conversation with Hunter Walker like Jordan said uh, it was a really good conversation including some history making live reaction to some some historic sports moments so this was a unique one but a really really enjoyable yep. conversation with Hunter Walker who's going to be joining the program right after this Please yeah. do. Please curse. Oh, fuck yes. So, so you're completely clued into this home run chase then. Oh my god, I, I am living this. I am I am going up to the Bronx to the Church of Judge on Sunday, which puts me in like a rough position because like, am I rooting for him to hit it now? Or am I rooting for him to hit it on Sunday? Wait, do you I, want I would if I were you, I'd want to see him break it. Yeah, I want sixty-two. I was just gonna say. Yeah, yeah I want but sixty-one is really special, guys. Yeah, he would tie the only clean record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't. I I literally muted Barry Bonds, Sosa, and McGuire, and all variations of their names on Twitter because I know there's just like <laughs> some like pedantic jerk out there who wants to like defend steroids. And I, I no, we don't. I, I th- that doesn't even belong in the discourse. We're not having it. Yeah, it's you don't just, think there should be a separate like mutant league for the. Just go crazy. Just do whatever you want. Let me tell you, I would watch That'd be the arena. I would watch the Arena Baseball League. <laughs> I would yeah. absolutely watch that, but 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 separate streams. Separate streams. Sure, yeah. That makes sense. Tell tell me a bit about what we're doing tonight. Tell me a bit about the vibe. I don't Set know. The scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're we're on the same wavelength, Hunter, because I'm also watching the uh the game. I wanted I want to see Judge break it. I'm very frustrated. I'm sure as especially as a Yankees fan, you were extremely frustrated that the Sox just really avoided him uh, at all costs that series. I think I saw some stat where uh, like 80 to 85 percent of pitches were outside the zone uh, I mean, after he hit after he hit 59, which is just total garbage. The thing is this, right? Like Babe Ruth, 
who is just singularly amazing. He played in like whatever it was a, a drastically shortened season to compared to what we see now. It was it, it was a different time. Um, so he's really awesome. But I think like the sixty home runs like totally understates Judge because he's gotten intentional walks you know eighteen times this season. But also like he's so massive. He's like six seven or whatever that like it's and there's literally like you know, verified measurements of this, he gets more bad strike calls than anybody. So so I actually thought like the Sox series, I was there for two of those games, like they were pitching to him broadly. But this Blue Jays series has been egregious. I mean, they've walked him like, uh, I think it's six times in the series so far. And I was just like tweeting about this and like, you know, some totally not embarrassed Jays fans are like, oh, but it was full count a bunch of times. Like, come on, man. And it's like, you know, we all know that this guy, like, has one of the weirdest zones in the sport. And and he's hitting this well, both for average and power, like, in a situation where it's literally been measured that he gets more bad strike calls than anybody. So he's, he's handicapped and he's at 60 home runs and about to get the triple crown. And he's just... The man brings me joy like nothing else in this cursed Hal Steinbrenner Yankees era. <laughs> he's the only thing that's made me watch willingly watch a Yankees game and root for them ever in my entire life. <laughs> What's your team, Jordan? Uh, Cleveland. Yeah, the Guardians. We, we, we haven't always gotten along. Yeah, go no. Guardians. I mean, honestly, what really disillusioned me with baseball and made me really cynical about the whole sport was just the '90s series, like all the series in the '90s, where we would just continually run into the Yankees and they would knock us out, or like. Uh, the two, and then and then teams that weren't the Yankees were just the two World Series losses in '95, '97, the Braves and Marlins. After that, I was just as a kid, it's just like too much heartbreak. <laughs> just like I don't think I like baseball anymore. <laughs> I, I mean, I I really, really, really can't complain because like I I lived through you know personally lived through more more series championships than like most franchises have. But like yeah, you know, since the death of our beloved George. Um, I, I really, I, I've joked to my friends, like, is this what being a Twins fan feel like? Because, like, they sell us on this idea, like, okay, we have a winning record. We made the playoffs when having these teams that, like, obviously aren't championship caliber. And it's like this year, it's like, it's going to be the Astros. It's going to be the Dodgers. Like, like maybe there's some slim chance if every ball bounces right, the Yankees will be okay. But, like, like this is not a World Series team. This is this is the church of Aaron Judge. Yeah. Well, I'm not a big baseball guy, but you you two are getting me into this. I'm getting kind of hyped here. I'm very frustrated that I have to watch this much baseball just to possibly see history. Well, hopefully uh, we'll capture be... history in audio form. That would be fun. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Longtime New Yorker, Hunter Walker, who's joining us tonight. Thank there you, we go. Hunter, nice. for joining us. Yeah. So I am coming to you guys live from Brooklyn. Aaron judges every at bat will be on in the background, and I warn you both, and I warn <laughs> I warn the listeners: if he hits sixty one, I'm going to absolutely lose my shit, and and you will have to decide whether that makes great podcasting or like the worst ever. But I cannot control it; it's beyond me. I'm going to go ahead and say it's going to be great. So <laughs> yeah. I feel good about it. Well, let's not jinx him. I'm knocking yeah. on wood here. Okay. Let's not jinx him, Hunter. We start all these conversations off the same way, though. So. We've asked everybody who's been a guest, and now it's your turn. Hunter Walker, are you a gamer? <laughs> so 
I play video games. I actually, Jordan, you know this about me. The number one thing I play is probably Magic Arena on my iPhone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the yep. only systems I have currently, I have a Switch. Um, I love the Switch. Um, and I also have the like little mini PlayStation 1 and Game Gear. Um, and, and I play the retro games on that. I'm not, so I don't know. Does that make me a gamer? Like I play games. Yeah. I think that counts. Yeah. Yeah, that counts. Switch definitely counts. This feels like inclusion because I feel like sometimes like, you know, if you don't play like, you know, Call of Duty or League of Legends, you know, you're not in the community. But, but, you know, I identify as a gamer. Yeah. I think people who gatekeep gaming are just psychotic. And it's usually the people who do that, like any we games would never that you mentioned. That. No, I'm not gatekeeping or girl bossing <laughs> gaming. <laughs> yeah, but oh, Jordan and I have had some fierce magic games together. I can only begin to imagine, yeah. And we did an in-person draft before Hunter skipped town to go back to to go back to his his motherland of New York. (laughs) Yeah, we had a pretty Uh, a pretty serious like politics and media adjacent magic circle going in DC for a minute there. I I might even have to that that's the only thing that makes me want to go back to DC. Yes, yeah, we got to expand it though. There are some other. There are some other people, there are some like other White House press pool people who play and who have wanted to play with us. So that'd be funny. What we've really got to do is get you a day pass, Jordan, and like have what I imagine would be the first ever magic game in the White House press basement. Yeah. I want to ask Kareen what, uh, what deck Biden's running. <laughs> I mean, she might, I, we, she and I used to work together, so I, she might call on me just because she, we, we know each other. Biden's sly. He strikes me as a control deck kind of guy. Oh, what a fucking loser. Like, oh, if he's running, if he's just running control uh, or Demir, like, I'm out. Sorry, dude. You, you know Trump what was a- aggro. It would have been all, like, black and <laughs> Trump green. Trump was goblins. Yeah. Trump black, was green, and red, red like, goblins. creatures and goblins coming at you. <laughs> a little two damage right there. <laughs> God, I, have, I have no idea what any of this is. It's so there's alienated. nothing stopping you from learning. We've talked about this on this show for years now, and there is nothing stopping you from learning these terms. I have the most tremendous dragons. <laughs> You've never seen dragons like these folks. Yeah, I've been slacking um, on the gaming. The only gaming I've been doing is this little mobile game called uh, Spell Tower. It's a little word. That? It's a little word thing. I don't know. You make it's like a tower. You do words. You know, you get points. It's one of these, one of these jobs. Okay. Just killing, yeah. killing time with work. That's spell right. Tower. That's right. Yeah. That's my big gaming sounds situation like a, right now. A true gamer. Yeah. I, mean, I think mobile counts. Yeah. Well, you'll, you'll notice that my whole like gaming rotation is based off of like my phone and like small consoles. And this is in part because my lovely wife absolutely dominates the television with the entire bravo cinematic universe so like Uh, phone gaming and the switch is like awful that's my refuge (laughs) what show or shows (laughs) okay the real housewives of potomac beverly hills (laughs) new york new jersey she does not like orange county she started getting into below deck she also enjoys southern charm i know way too much about all of these people every now and then i catch myself and i'll like burst out an opinion and i'll be like i don't think ship's ready to settle down and then i hate myself for like 48 (laughs) hours 
you need to start mixing those takes in with your like J6 tweets. <laughs> just like just pepper like one or two in a week. Uh, <laughs> Keep people on their toes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that is why you're here, and we we do, we do need to get to that. <laughs> we're, we're not here to talk about Bravo. Come on, guys. Yeah, we save. I mean, we save the more important stuff for the end of the conversation. So we'll get back to Bravo. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> baseball, gaming, magic, Bravo. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is why people tune into this program. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is run the gamut, guys. Yeah. Uh, but Hunter, you've got a you've got a book coming out. <laughs> it came out on Tuesday. Yeah, did you guys like shock drop it? I feel like I didn't see an announcement. All of a sudden, it was out. Yeah, so uh, I am the co-author of the breach, the untold story of the January sixth investigation, and I wrote this with former Virginia congressman and senior technical advisor to the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol attack, Denver Riggleman. Um, and basically, yeah, we didn't um, we we unveiled this last Sunday on sixty Minutes. Um, it was it was kept pretty quiet up until then. And, and um, you know, we were really hoping that people would pay attention to um, some of the revelations that were contained in this book. It's, it's a mixture of both his personal story um, and also some of the raw data that he came across while working on the investigation. So, well, first, congrats on that. You went AWOL for a couple months, and I figured you were up to something like that. You were just like, I can't tweet for a while. I, I, I'm so busy. I have something big I'm working on. And, you know, for anybody who writes, like, the, the first assumption is, oh, it's a book. But this is, like, a pretty big book. Uh, and, yeah, of course, getting a 60 Minutes feature, like, p- promoting it right before it launches is pretty sick. So, congratulations. The, the couple months, as, as tough as it was to crash a book that quickly... Um, the couple months I spent off Twitter were were just such a gift. <laughs> yeah, Twitter's well, pretty bad. Important stuff. You, yeah. uh, Hunter, tell us about this book. So these these big revelations that you want people to pay attention to. Uh, what are some of them? Well, don't, it, no, it, don't give it all away. We, we want people to buy the book. In a climate where the try guys are trending, I am trying to get people to turn their mind back to January sixth. Um, and, you know, me personally, and I'm just I'm just the co-author of this book, but I um, was covering uh, the attack on the Capitol live that day. And it was immediately apparent to me how serious this was and also that it was organized and that it was organized at the highest levels. Um, you know, quite literally, a stage was set with the president by his campaign, where he told the crowd to, quote unquote, fight like hell. And these people, as he was speaking, many of whom were in tactical gear, they brought blunt weapons and other equipment, marched down Pennsylvania Avenue and and broke into the Capitol with the clear aim of, you know, disrupting the peaceful transfer of power after a free and fair election. So I've really like dedicated myself to exposing as much of as much as I can about what happened that day and specifically, you know, not focusing on the stories of the individual rioters who entered the building, but trying to really detail the higher level organization and infrastructure that was behind them. And as I was doing a series of uh, articles on this for Rolling Stone, for my own newsletter, uh, for a couple different outlets, I came across Denver. Um, and he's a really, really interesting guy who clearly had a really unique story to tell. Um, 
Denver's Virginia, born and bred. He talks in the book about how he, you know, grew up in a really conservative religious environment. Um, but he never really planned on getting into politics. He was an Air Force guy uh, and he worked in Air Force intelligence, uh, largely tracking uh, Russian threats and terror groups in the Mideast. And he went on to work for the National Security Agency, the sort of secretive surveillance agency that we all know from, uh, you know, the Edward Snowden revelations. And then he sort of became a defense contractor. He went private and did quite well for himself. And he ended up with a whiskey distillery, which had always been sort of his wife's dream. Through this kind of a strange path, he found himself butting heads with the Virginia liquor regulatory agencies. And, you know, he felt like the beer lobby gave them all an unfair advantage over the distillers. Um, and he ran a campaign for governor in the early phase of the Trump administration uh, that he dubbed the Whiskey Rebellion. And totally didn't work. Um, but a little bit later, uh, the guy who'd actually been occupying the congressional seat, and this this is a storied congressional seat, was once held by James Madison down there in Virginia's 5th District, was facing an ethics investigation and, of course, you know, quickly leaves to, quote unquote, be with his family. Uh, totally nothing to do with the investigation. Um, <laughs> and what this meant due to, you know, state law was... The outgoing congressman had already gotten the Republican Party nomination. And of course, this is a bright red district. You know, whoever had the nod was de facto, um, you know, going to get the seat. Um, and because he was already on the line, they couldn't do another primary. And the rules called for a sort of backroom committee vote to pick the new Republican nominee. So Denver, you know, gets the call because he'd sort of made a name for himself with this whiskey rebellion. Um, and he basically became a congressman after, I think, a five-day campaign where he got like less than 20 votes in a back room. Um, so he really calls himself the accidental congressman. Um, and part of getting that committee support in such a bright red district was, uh, meant joining the House Freedom Caucus. This is the ultra-conservative uh, cadre of right-wing congressmen. Uh, the group was once led by Mark Meadows himself. Um, and so Denver is, is deep inside the GOP. Um, but he was kind of an odd fit, and he'd had kind of an odd path there. And at one point, he actually officiated a gay wedding for two of his campaign volunteers. And this just completely earned the ire of the party. Uh, and he and his family faced death threats. Um, you know, he, he completely lost the support of the committee and ultimately lost his seat. And this is when he really started to become aware of QAnon and of sort of the conspiratorial far right bent um, of the MAGA era Republican Party. And as he's seeing this firsthand and getting pushed out, he basically devotes his last stretch in Congress to speaking out on the floor and sponsoring a resolution condemning QAnon. And on January 3rd, 2021, he leaves Washington, goes back down to the Shenandoah Valley. Um, and at this point, he's gotten involved with all the academic researchers who are sort of tracking the new far right. Uh, and on January 5th, he puts out a tweet saying, like, all our networks are lighting up. We have every indication that, you know, tomorrow could be another Charlottesville. And Charlottesville's in his district. I mean, he, he knows this well and he was connected with the right people. Um, so through all of that experience, as well as his military intelligence background, he basically gets pulled into the January 6th investigation. Uh, and the book talks about 
how through his own life experience, through his military experience, he's come to view the MAGA wing of the Republican Party as a militant Christian nationalist organization. And it also talks about, you know, the effect that had in his own community, in his own family. And then it goes through some of the raw data that he helped compile for the committee, um, namely telephone records, um, where you can quite literally see through these individual lines of data that represent phone calls and individual communications, that the military and political components of the attack on Cap on the Capitol were linked. These various militant groups like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers were coordinating with each other. They were communicating with, you know, activists and higher level associates of President Trump. Many, many Republican congressmen were involved. And the president himself was was on these link maps. And, you know, the lines went all the way up to the top. Well, speaking of like the rise of, of QAnon and this kind of like Christian nationalist movement, I mean, what's from someone that's been kind of a neck deep in, in paying attention to this? What, how has it been for you watching this go from this kind of really peripheral fringe movement? Um, you know, you, we all remember when Trump was elected and Pizzagate and the origins of mm -hmm. QAnon and this very bizarre Internet subculture that was just completely incomprehensible. And the idea that that would become like a mainstream phenomenon, I think even quite recently was pretty unthinkable. Like the idea that can you imagine if an elected official actually espoused some of these views? And now that's almost seeming like the, the common denominator with a lot of these new right wing figures that are popping up. Like how is how's it how's that been for you paying attention to this and seeing QAnon go from this fringe, um, this completely fringe weirdo uh, internet subculture into this mainstream phenomenon that's directly directly leading to you know these these like undemocratic uh, movements to uh, to to you know interfere in the in the peaceful transfer of power like on January six. I mean that's such a great great question, Rob, because you know before I got pulled into this book project I, and before I really you know, shifted my focus to exclusively investigating January 6th. Um, I was a White House correspondent for Yahoo News. Um, and that experience really came out of New York, where, um, you know, as early as 2013, I developed a relationship with Trump um, and his inner circle as he sort of flirted with running for governor and then, you know, launched his presidential campaign on the Golden Escalator. And, you know, everything is accelerating in these times we're living in. I mean, our, our phones are pinging constantly. You know, there's more media. There's more ability to buy things. There's just more, 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 more. And it's easy to lose track of the recent past and forget how quickly everything has moved and evolved. And, you know, circa 2015, when Trump launched his presidential campaign, we're talking about a guy who is mainly concerned with, you know, Mexican immigration and trade deals, Right. This this QAnon mythology didn't even exist yet. And it really only sprouted up in, in you know, more recent years uh, during the election. Uh, and Trump himself only really directly embraced it in the past couple months. Um, you know, it was just a couple weeks ago we saw the, the first rally where he, you know, was playing this QAnon music, this this. WW1WWGA song by a guy with the pseudonym Dick Feelgood. And no, I'm not making that up. <laughs> and Trump was playing this at his rally. The, the, the title stands for Where We Go One, Where We, we Go All. Um, you know, a QAnon slogan. He had people, you know, raising their hands in the air. And, and he started, you know, he had always like retweeted these people who, um, you know, 
he's many times retweeted explicit QAnon accounts, but that was really the first time that he had the QAnon pageantry be part of his pitch. And so it's accelerated. It's accelerated a lot. And, and first off, you know, I think people forget that at its core, QAnon is A, anti-Semitic. I mean, it's really, you know, based around the narrative structure of, you know, blood libel conspiracies that have been around, um, focused on the Jews uh, since the medieval times. Um, but also it's at its core violent. I mean, the, the central fantasy of QAnon is that there are people inside government working with Trump to root out these traitors and pedophiles who will, you know, essentially all be executed in what they call the storm, right? So it's, it's a really dangerous conspiracy. And, you know, working with Denver was so interesting because through his military intelligence experience, but also through his, you know, direct personal knowledge of the right, he was able to talk about, you know, how this is so effective at radicalizing people, how it is almost sort of a um, drug-resistant strain of conspiracy theory, whereby drawing on, you know, more ancient myths and adding components to that, it's become super strong and really designed to, you know, hit people straight in their frontal lobes. But also, you know, going through this data, I mean, we, we combed through the entire Mark Meadows text log, you're essentially getting a real-time record of the highest levels of government, whether it be the White House Chief of Staff or, you know, tens of Republican members of Congress, as senator, local officials, you're watching them get radicalized. And one of the, like, most disturbing things for for me, um, when I was talking to Denver about this and when I was looking at his data, was you were seeing members of Congress send each other and, and base very serious proposals and actions on the most utterly deranged and unhinged sources. Um, you know, Paul Gosar, the congressman from Arizona, was sending around videos, including one from a site called Some Bitch Told Me. Um, one of the sources for these guys was something called the NOQ Report. Um, they were, you know, sending each other YouTube videos and links um, from foreign sources that, that may literally be foreign intelligence operations. Um, so it was like watching a party lose its mind and and having next to me someone who as a military intelligence official or a former military intelligence official knew just how dangerous this was but had also been sitting there with them and was alarmed himself yeah i think i'm i'm interesting i'm interested to hear more about some of the these, these things that alarmed you because as for people who covered this day to day i think you probably get desensitized to a lot of the newer stuff um and from the outside a lot of it just kind of seems opaque um and some of these things that i know like cnn really likes to sensationalize to a lot of observers doesn't seem that significant <clears throat> so were there moments when you were working on this book that you guys came across something or went to include something that just really stood out like holy shit like people need to know about this um specifically i think i'm more interested in like the the connection to the white house because that's that's the thing i think seems really abstract for a lot of people it's like yes i can see visuals of what happened at the capitol people make their own determination about how they feel about it usually just aligns with their partisan politics but what is more uh vague and abstract for even people who think and and know that what happened on january 6th was bad was the connection to the white house so some of these texts 
uh, or communications or planning. What stood out as something that you think people really need to know about uh, this whole ordeal? Well, so first off, let's just pull back away from the breach. Let's pull back from this book that I just co-wrote. And let's talk about what we all knew about January 6th on January 6th, right? And it was already apparent that there was a plot to overturn the election. It was already apparent that the president was deeply involved in this um, and that, you know, um, the president was inciting people towards violence. And why do I say that? Uh, Because you had President Trump refusing to concede. You had President Trump explicitly supporting months of rallies around the country where activists that he was, you know, in communication with were protesting the election result. When I say explicit support, this went as far as him, you know, flying Marine One over one of these, quote unquote, stop the steal rallies in D.C., In conjunction with this, you had Republican members of Congress appearing at these events, advancing completely false, totally debunked narratives about alleged fraud and questioning the election result with no basis, despite Republican officials, Trump administration officials, you know, at every level of government validating the results of the election. So you have this organized push to question and protest the election. Then you had... I think 147 members of Congress voting against the election that day on the House floor. You have, as I was alluding to before, this rally where, you know, Trump's campaign and White House officials paid for crowds to come to D.C. They paid for the infrastructure. They had Trump on stage and he told people to, quote unquote, fight like hell. The crowd included groups like the Proud Boys that Trump had, you know, winked and nodded at and encouraged before. They'd been involved in the months of protests. And again, they they brought their equipment with them. So all of that we knew simply watching live. And I think people didn't pay enough attention to that at the time. And, and they forget that. And that's part of why me, as someone who was standing there, I was so alarmed by what I saw that day. And I was convinced that, you know, this was one of the most important moments in American history. All of that being said, as someone who watched it extremely closely, who watched it play out live, who was standing there on the Capitol steps as these crowds are breaking windows and beating police officers around me, um, what I saw when I looked into the data that Denver and his team had compiled, completely shocked me. And it took it to a whole new level. Um, You know, first you had these texts that showed, A, just how organized it was, you know, from the alternate electors plot to the vote on the House floor to the spreading of conspiracy theories. But one of these texts showed that Jim Jordan, the Ohio congressman, was actually leading strategy sessions to overturn the election out of CPI, a dark money group in Washington. They had a headquarters where they were meeting. Uh, one of Sean Hannity's producers was communicating with them about this, his radio producer, Linda McLaughlin. Um, You know, so the coordination and the involvement of members of Congress, you know, was just laid so bare, as was, again, their, you know, true believer status when it came to these, like, absolutely nutty sources of information. But then, you know, there were these link maps. And again, the link maps were made through call records. um, And they essentially were a visual documentation of who who was communicating. Um, And one of the ones that was most striking to me, it looked like a pyramid, right? 
and you had, you know, in one corner, the Proud Boys, in another, the Oath Keepers, and then at the top of the triangle, you had the Rally Planner. And the base was just completely thick with the communication between the Oath Keepers and, and, and Proud Boys. So you could just see how much these two militant groups were coordinated. And then you saw the lines going up, you know, to show you that they were um, communicating with these rally planners hosting these events that involved the Congress, members of Congress and the president. So it was, it was just sort of stunning to see the evidence and to see it all laid out like that. And then, you know, there was stuff that was a little bit weirder. There were these calls from White House phone numbers to people like Bianca Gracia, um, a very close associate of the former head of the Proud Boys. Uh, there was one phone call from the White House to a DOJ-charged rioter, and that phone call came as the riot was underway, as the attack on the Capitol was underway on January 6th. So this data showed that the call was literally coming from inside the White House. Um, and that was shocking to me as much as I sort of knew it had to be there. When you see it sitting in front of you, it's still, you know, it'll make your knees buckle. What do you make of, um, or how would you respond to, I think, some of the cynicism that people have around this? Um, you know, because the, the January 6th hearings were going on and you had a lot of people treating it like it was this really the most important thing going on and you had to pay attention to it. And I admit that I, you know, while while understanding that it was overall a, a very serious uh, incident and it, it, really, it was a, a concerted effort on the part of the uh, of Donald Trump and a lot of powerful uh, lawmakers to kind of undemocratically uh, overturn the election results. But also at the same time, I guess like part of my cynicism about the whole January 6th hearings were just that, um, you know, this whole idea that we had that there's this multi-week process needed to go on uh, with all these interviews and all the evidence and everything that was that happened in order to prove that Donald Trump wanted to overturn the election results when like you're pointing out that that was pretty obvious from moment one. I guess that was always the the, the difficult uh, circle to square for me is is understanding that, you know, like I thought it was pretty clear that that's exactly what Donald Trump wanted and that like this, this whole process of discovering all this evidence to uh, prove that is just, I mean, when, when, you know, anyone could have used their eyes and ears on that day and, 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 or the weeks leading up to it when he was clearly explicitly demanding that people show up in Washington and riot on his behalf Um is kind of all the evidence that I think anyone would ever need to to understand pretty much exactly what was going on there. So how how do you answer to that kind of like hipst, hipsterish uh, cynicism that I'm displaying there? <laughs> I mean, you know, one thing that the book goes into in great detail, and again with Denver's you know insider perspective, is how the committee was sort of limited and hampered by various political concerns. I mean, the committee didn't get started until. Um, July 2021. It took six months to even begin this investigation. Um, there are a lot of people, including Denver, who think we would have been better off with a bipartisan independent commission along the way, along the lines of um, how we investigated 9-11. But Republicans on the Hill basically scuttled that. Uh, this committee doesn't have criminal authority. Its ability to get data and, and, and pull certain records is limited. It obviously, you know, even in situations where there's been blatant contempt of Congress, it has to go to the Justice Department um, to refer those charges. They can't, you know, really take any action on themselves. Um, and then also one thing that I didn't know about at all until I met Denver was, you know, 
certain people, including him, had pushed for the committee to have a larger budget, which would have given it more uh, investigatory capabilities. And it didn't have that. So first off, the committee was slowed down um, and hampered by factors completely outside of it con- its control. That being said, I think they've done some amazing work. I mean, I, I can close my eyes in picture that first hearing um, back in July 2021. Uh, it was sort of the preview of the rest of their work where they let some of these Capitol Police and, and Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department officers who you know had what they called, quote unquote, medieval fighting with these crowds for hours. They let these officers tell their story and it was just wrenching. And I know that one really like was a gut punch for me where, you know, I was just we were all forced to confront just the shocking level of violence that people who you know put themselves on the line to quite literally defend our democracy uh, went through on that day. Uh, since then, you know, they've done a bunch of hearings. Um, you know, I think largely focused on you know some of the things going on in Trump's White House, the crowds that stormed the building. But you know, I have to say, and this is me speaking, not Denver. Um, You know, one of the takeaways that I have after going through all of this data is, you know, why didn't the committee bring up some of this other stuff? I mean, you know, Rob, you're saying that kind of you tuned out. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. And I wish that prior to the publication of this book, you'd seen some of these link maps because I think they're incredibly compelling. And I think they show, you know, the fact that this was a political and military operation in a way that nothing else does. They show that it wasn't just the president saying fight like hell. It wasn't just sort of this accidental conflagration. It was the result of extensive coordination and planning. And the committee has that data. It's had that data for months and it hasn't shown it to the American people. And so Denver and I are taking a lot of heat this week for people being like, oh, you know, why didn't you let the committee do its work? Let the committee do its work. You know, first off, the committee hasn't doesn't have an end date. So were they saying we should have indefinitely sat on this information? My attitude, frankly, I pushed the publishers to speed up the timeline of this book because the second I heard there was a phone call from the White House, the second I saw these link maps, I said, the American people need to see this. And I don't want to be involved in this if I'm, I'm a journalist. I don't want to be involved in this if I'm not reporting to the public everything we know about what happened that day. And, and, and all I can tell you is that if you read The Breach, you will see information in there that beyond anything you've heard from the committee details who was involved, how they were involved, and how these political players were literally one degree removed from militants like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. So, you know, maybe we knew the basic contours of it, but I think there's clear data out there. And this is not about my opinion. This is not about Denver's opinion. This is about hard evidence. And the hard evidence shows just how serious this was. And 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 it's evidence that, you know, the American people is finally seeing this week, and I'm really, really glad about that. Kind of the inverse, too, of how most people, especially during the Trump years, uh, sat on information for their kind of palace intrigue books. They would sit on it for even even at the like the the Woodward thing with with the COVID information, just sitting on that for several months, uh, if not maybe a full year. Like that is that is so awful that is so unbelievably awful and it's just kind of like i understand like the thought behind it because it's like oh i need to sell this book so i need something to 
to use to get people's attention. But still, when you find something that significant, that needs to be out there. So I'm glad you at least fought for it. Um, I mean, I'm very aware of the contours of that debate. And and as both a reporter and a citizen, you know, I am very sympathetic you know, to people who are concerned that, you know, journalists would be sitting on information to make money for a book. At the same time, you know, I think we all need to be aware of the mechanics of the publishing industry. As a reporter, and I'm working on a second book right now, it's about the left. Um, As a reporter, I can sometimes get people to tell me things if they know it's embargoed for a book that they won't tell me uh, in any other context. Also, you know, there's physical printing that has gotten even more complex in the supply chain um, and takes, you know, at least a month, even if you're rushing like we were. So, you know, on the one hand, I think the public doesn't really understand how long it takes to put out a book. At the same time, you know, we and our publisher, Holt, made an extraordinary effort to, while giving the committee all the way up to the summer recess to do as many hearings as they could, we wanted to get this information out quickly. Uh, And frankly, I hope we see more books that kind of operate on a bit of a different timeline, both so they stay more fresh for people and also so that the press, this this industry that's so vital to our democracy, can maintain the public trust. Uh, But what's, what's hilarious and kind of baffling to me as we're releasing this book is like, you know, I was aware of the conversation before where people like yourself, Jordan, were saying like, why are reporters sitting on this stuff? Why are reporters sitting on this stuff? And we've run into backlash, including from some fellow reporters, like, why did you come out with this stuff? You should have waited for the committee. And it's like, I'm not clear when the committee was planning to tell you that, um, you know, there was a call coming from the White House. But in my mind, that's one of the most crucial pieces of information about this whole situation. And, and you know, to wait for it is, is a sin that we in journalism call burying the lead. And, and, you know, we've seen this article. There was this one article from CNN where they sort of tried to diminish the significance of this phone call, this phone call that came from a White House number to a DOJ charged rioter. And they said, oh, it was only nine seconds long. It was only nine seconds long. And as Denver says, to a counterterrorism analyst, nine seconds is an eternity. I mean, one thing we saw studied throughout these texts was people saying, oh, let's go to Signal. Let's switch to encrypted channels. You can say that in nine seconds, right? The bottom line is that a phone call from the White House, uh, the White House switchboard, to a charged rioter is the first publicly reported direct link between the Trump West Wing and the militants as the riot happened. And I don't think we should minimize that for any reason. I think we need to follow up on it. Uh, And we saw CNN, you know, call this rioter Anton Lunick. They they identified him. We didn't because we were hoping, you know, to preserve that for the committee so they could follow up on the lead in in private. But CNN put his name out um, and he said, oh, I don't know anyone from the White House. I don't don't remember that call. Um, And they sort of just took his word for it. It's like, I don't take his word for it. I want to know more. I want to know who he called next. I want to know more about him. I think that should be investigated. And we have, in the past you know, days since this book came out, proof that these leads had not been followed up on um, and that when you do, there's important information to be learned. Uh, namely, along with this phone call, we'd found out that um, Kelly Sorrell, uh, the former general counsel of the Oath Keepers, who for a time, perhaps still, was their acting president when their founder, Stuart Rhodes, was uh, put in jail for his involvement in January 6th. 
she was texting White House landline. That's one of these phone records that we revealed for the first time in this book. And and I got to be honest, I thought that one was less important. I, we included it in the book because, you know, Denver was adamant about it. But also I thought, you know, at the very least, it shows that she thought she had an ally in the White House. But, you know, like who texts a landline? Was that an accident? What was that? Well, NBC found out because uh, Ryan Riley and Ben Collins over there, after they read our book, they didn't try to dismiss it. They actually did reporting and followed up on the information in the book, and they called Kelly Sorrell. And they found out that A, the committee had never called Kelly Sorrell about this, and B, she said, oh yeah, I was in touch with Andy Giuliani, a former Trump White House aide, candidate for governor in New York uh, on the Republican line, and son of Mayor Rudy Giuliani, one of the president's closest associates. So a headline that came out of this book is that Andy Giuliani, you know, one of the most well-connected people in Trump era Republican politics was working directly with the Oath Keepers militants. And I really, you know, don't understand why I've seen more headlines talking about the D.C. backroom drama of people, you know, being nervous that we came forward with this investigation that I'm seeing stories about Andy Giuliani's connection to the Oath Keepers. Ankled them. They're wrangled. <laughs> yeah, that was the, the WAPO headline. Wa WAPO decided to cover this by focusing on the fact that, like, the committee was quote unquote rankled. You know, I, I, I'd like to see WAPO covering the lake maps. I'd like to see WAPO covering the fact that Congressman Jim Jordan led an effort to overturn the election out of the headquarters of a dark money group. But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. One one January 6th angle that's always really bothered me since the day and which I don't think has ever really been explored enough as like in, in these hearings uh, or elsewhere that I'm wondering if you have any input on um, Hunter is just how these rioters were able to breach the Capitol in the way that they were. I think that's the one of the thing that's I think anyone paying attention to this stuff could could easily understand, which is that if if like Black Lives Matter, for instance, had been planning this kind of event, saying we're going to storm the Capitol for weeks and weeks with these dark money groups pouring funding into advertising this and busing people there. And all the ways this was telegraphed for so long, the little president of the United States talking about it, how the United States government was not able to summon the kind of adequate security forces to shut this thing down. Because um, there's there's a number of sort of ways you can go and directions you can go with that. Um, when you talk about the sort of infiltration of law enforcement uh, institutions like DHS with these very kind of MAGA, hardcore conservative types who are very Trump supporting. There's the kind of weird angle about the federal infiltration in these groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. It's That's always been very, very confusing to me. And that's something that I don't think has been ever really addressed properly um, or adequately in any of these hearings or any of this reporting. Is that anything you've touched on at all? Or do you have any theories about how exactly this was able to break down in such a way to allow this uh, this capital right to escalate to the way it did? Well, you know, Rob, I, I, I'm really glad you asked that question. And I would say to you, you know, um, you should definitely read The Breach because we have an entire chapter <laughs> that will. is literally focused on this. Oh, great. Um, so let me set the stage first off, if, if you don't mind. Um, and, you know, before moving back to my beloved Brooklyn um, last month, I was living in D.C. for almost the entirety of the Trump administration. Um and, you know, after the death of George Floyd in the summer of 2020, uh, D.C. was site of 
some of the most explosive protests um, anywhere in the nation. Um, and these protests in D.C., they were intense. I mean, people lit office buildings on fire. Um, they breached the barricades of the White House one night in May. Um, and I was there that night and I was covering them all, you know, live in the streets. Um, and as much as the protesters were super violent, um, the government response was really violent, too. You saw these basically unmarked federal troops from an alphabet soup of agencies, including, uh, you know, the, the Bureau of Prisons and the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, surging into D.C. Um, there was the incident in Lafayette Park. I was there also where, you know, um, prior to Trump's photo op and a few minutes before a curfew, um, you had, God, I think it was like Secret Service or U.S. Park Police troops on horseback surge into the crowd. People got tear gassed and they tried to deny it was tear gas. So there was this really like intense um intense government response to the Black Lives Matter protests. And a lot of people have wondered, you know, why didn't we see something similar uh, when it came to January 6th? Um, and, you know, I think the, the, the first answer of this is that, you know, Trump and his administration obviously ordered a very severe crackdown um, of, of these other protests in a way that they did not um, on January 6th. But that being said, you know, um, and I think part of it is due to both A, my involvement and B, Denver's, you know, really interesting background in politics where he's not, you know, fully years long dedicated to, you know, uh, the Hill. Um, we go through how a lot of people were to blame. Uh, for the security failures on January 6th. I mean, Muriel Bowser, the mayor of Washington, you know, preemptively said, please, like, we don't want National Guard troops here. And I think some of that is PTSD because of what happened in 2020. But, it, you know, in hindsight, that was not great. Um, we go through and it takes like five pages, the like draconian series of like jurisdictional issues that like prevent, um, that prevent, um, anyone from doing anything in D.C. when it comes to law enforcement. I mean, you know, D.C. is really complicated. It's not a state. Um, the city police have jurisdiction over certain areas, but the National Mall, which includes the Capitol, um, is overseen by the Capitol Police. There's all these federal forces like U.S. Park Police. So it's really complicated. Um, Nancy Pelosi tasked Russell Honore, the, the general that we all sort of remember from the Hurricane Katrina response, um, with leading a security review um, of what happened on January 6th. Um, and his takeaway was that a lot of this needs to be streamlined. But it also was that, you know, the Capitol Police, they don't have a big enough budget. They're not devoted enough to intelligence. Um, and there's just a lot of blame to go around. Now, a lot of people have, you know, thrown the focus at Pelosi um, because as Speaker of the House, she, you know, sort of oversees the House Sergeant at Arms and the Capitol Police. But folks forget that the Senate side um, also has a role in overseeing this stuff. So this is on Pelosi and McConnell. Uh, one of the guys who resigned on the House side had been appointed by John Boehner. So this is just like a complex bipartisan screw up. And something like that, it's, it's, almost, it's almost designed not to get coverage or attention because it's just, it's not simple and it's not easy to point a finger. Um, but, you know, if you're really interested in, you know, the total communication breakdown and the security failures on January 6th, it is something we, we, we dig into in detail. Very interesting. I mean, I'd be curious if there's anything else you want to add and, uh, 
uh, on this specifically, but before we wrap, if, if there isn't, there is something I would like to ask you about, about your Trump years. Um, <laughs> so if there's anything else about the book, uh, final pitch or anything else that you want to mention that people should know about it, uh, please, please be our guest. You know, I'll, I'll say two things. Uh, one, one that we didn't touch on, but you know, along with all of this raw data from the investigation, you know, Denver touches on his own personal story. And he talks about, you know, how really extreme religion um, caused rifts in his family uh, and a lot of difficulties in his personal life. And that coupled with his, that, that conservative upbringing coupled with his military intelligence experience, I think led him to talk about MAGA in a new way that I haven't heard before. I mean, he quite simply calls it a fanatical, militant, religious, nationalist movement. Uh, and I think that's something, you know, far too people in Washington and in media are, are, are willing to say. Also, you know, because he's bringing military intelligence expertise to bear on this evidence, one of, I think, the more interesting takeaways from the whole thing uh, that he had was that both in terms of their use of the internet for radicalization and their operational techniques, including multiple cells, um, you know, multiple, uh, multiple prongs of attack. He did um, it. And he also, did it. oh my God. Oh shit. He did it. Yeah. Oh my God. Your, <laughs> your TV was faster than the app. Oh, sorry. Oh! Sorry. He, he did it. Oh my God. We oh manifested, Hunter. Oh my God. This History. is... This is the Insurgents Podcast. You guys are the ones who did it. You guys are the ones who did it. I agree. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. And by the way, that's uh, the first. I didn't that, know that one had the leg. That is the second 61st homer, but it is the first time that the 61st homer has been hit in Canada. He's in Toronto right now. And this yeah. is just, this is fucking A. Yes. Oh, my phone is about to blow up. My phone, my mother is calling me. Um, this is incredible. This is incredible. You, you hear it right now on the insurgents. <laughs> January 6th was a horrible coordinated attack, and Aaron Judge is the greatest baseball player of the modern era. What were we saying? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm totally... This is fucking incredible. Let's go Yankees! Yes! Um, I can literally hear people screaming all over my block. Um, really? um, wow. Wow. All right. All right. Okay, now he needs to not hit anymore until Sunday because I'm going to be there on Sunday in the Bronx and I want to see 62. Look at Roger Maris's family hugging. Uh, so what I love about the Yankees is like no other team has this history. But, but okay, so we were talking about um, my book, which I should really com- – com- Complete telling you about yes oh um <laughs> little sidebar little sidebar yeah, okay. but but so the other thing that that he was talking about was that both in terms of their recruitment their digital radicalization I love that I shared this moment with you guys by the way me too um, mm-hmm. in terms of their recruitment in terms of their digital radicalization and also operationally you know switching to encrypted methodologies having multiple cells what have you the techniques of the MAGA militants mirror those that Denver saw when he was tracking Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, So we've seen this all before. You know, we've seen domestic terror. We've seen anti-democratic authoritarian movements. And 
the historical analogs for all of that stuff is really, really dark. Uh, so I really hope people read this book. I really hope they take it seriously. I don't even care. Pick it up in your library. Like, don't buy it if you, you know, just, 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 just read it. Just read it because this is a moment that we all really need to take stock and, and we cannot deny what we are seeing. And, and I care about this so much that I have turned away from the Yes app and I, I, I have stopped my cheering like to, to really, really ask people to like not worry about the DC meta drama and the backroom stuff and to open this book and like just get the full story of what happened that day. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's um, so beautiful. <laughs> One more thing on the judge thing, though. What I really appreciate yes. is nobody nobody in the stands caught the ball so that we don't have to go through some bullshit like haggling uh, for the judge to get the ball back. Oh, uh, yeah. So I, I've been to a couple games this season. I've seen like three of his home runs. And me and my buddy Mike went to one and we literally picked our seat based off of StatCast because um, we wanted to catch one. And first off, like as we're walking in, I'm realizing I'm like, this could get awkward. And I'm like, hey, Mike. Let's make a deal. We catch it, we share it. We sell it, we share it. We work together. I don't want to be fighting you if it comes our way. And then, like, last week, I went up to the stadium for, like, three of the games, you know, when he was at 60 to see the record, record-breaking record one. I had standing room tickets because Yankee Stadium is absurdly expensive. And I did not go anywhere near the outfield because the pileups that are going to start happening for these balls, I mean – I don't want to be anywhere near the violence and craziness that is going to happen when these things hit the stands. Did you read David Roth's piece about, uh, I think it was Darren Ravel's like tweets and like blogs about how you should haggle? Did you, David Roth's piece making fun of it is so funny. (laughs) I I would encourage you to go revisit it. Cause I mean, the same thing is going to happen now, especially for 62, uh, oh, I'm the, 62, the, and I'm not biased. I'm not just saying this because tonight was in Toronto, and I'm going to be there on Sunday, and I can't, I, I couldn't see this one. But 62 is the most important one. That's when he's passing the record, and then of course, like whatever the last home run he hits. Oh my God! Look at the faces of those guys where where the ball fell into the ballpen right in front of them. Oh, they're crushed. Mm-hmm. These are yep. adults who brought a mitt to the baseball game like they were going to get called in and <laughs> their dreams so are just dashed. No, but it shouldn't go to a Blue Jays fan. Ugh. I, but, you know, I got to say, like, like there was that one guy. He, I think he gave Aaron Judge the 60th homer. And, like, I love Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge has deepened my appreciation for the game and made me excited about baseball in a way that, like, I have not been in such a long time. But um, this is so fucking cool. But, like... <laughs> If I catch one of those home run balls, Aaron Judge is a multi-multi-millionaire. He is not getting that for free from me. Sure, he needs yeah. to buy that shit from me. And I love the guy, but he's got to pay for the ball. Pony up. <laughs> That's your souvenir. Yeah. yeah. What's it worth to you? I mean, at the end of the day, the Yankees would probably foot the bill. Like, it's just, it's not that big of a oh, deal. Oh, no, Hal Steinbrenner won't pay for anything, but Judge has it. It's okay. Hal, Hal Steinbrenner's cheap. That, that's why we haven't won a championship since 09, but like, oh. oh. you're so deprived. I'm so sorry this is happening to you. It's nine. Oh, nine. Oh, my God. <laughs> we went a whole decade without one for a minute. 13 oh. years, but, oh. 
Oh, my last Dude. trophy is a bar mitzvah boy. Oh my God. <laughs> he freaking hit it. <laughs> I love too that people were like calling this a slump for him. But like like one of the games I went to, he didn't hit a home run. The guy like blasted two hits. I mean, people forget like he's going for the triple crown too. The guy does it all. Have you seen like some of his defensive play? Oh my God. We love we love Aaron Judge. I am horrified about our democracy. I am extremely pessimistic about the future of this country, but this man has made it a wonderful summer for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to close it on a positive note, you yeah. told me a story over dinner several months ago that <laughs> oh, has oh, stuck you're pull, with me. You're pulling me on record now, bro. <laughs> but it is so funny, and I want more people to hear it. Would you tell Rob, me, and our listeners about the day you were covering the White House when Clemson came? <laughs> yes, that's no problem. Even though I'm mad at you, because technically you on TV and me with my little yes app, you spoiled the homer for me, Jordan. But uh, I thought but, you were watching the same time. Sorry. Well, I, I I thought so too. But you know, there there goes the Hal Steinbrenner Yes Network. But that's another story. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I was a White House correspondent for Yahoo, um, and um, I was part of the press pool. Uh, and for listeners who don't know about this, basically, there are reporters who are with the president every time they have a public event or they leave the White House. Uh, and these reporters travel in the motorcade. We go on Air Force One. Um, essentially, you know, A, just to make sure that none of these events get lost to history. But also, you know, for example, one of my former colleagues was like, you know, a pool reporter on 9-11. And like, thank God there were reporters with him because when he, you know, ended up staying in the air, there were people there to kind of capture that story. Um, now, I covered Trump. It wasn't anything necessarily so traditionally historic in such a traditional sense. Um, basically, the the college football national champions, Clemson, came to the White House. And this was during the government shutdown. Uh, and Trump had a very special way of making sure that this event could continue uh, without taxpayer dollars. Um, and of course, that's kind of a misnomer because there were still all these White House staff there, but whatever. Um, and basically, me and the other reporters get led up the steps um, into, the, into the White House. Um, and I know things are about to get weird because suddenly I'm like blasted with warm air and the unmistakable smell of French fries. And I walk into the room and I'm first one in and I, and I knew this with Trump. With Trump, I always A, had a question prepared and B, had my phone out and filming because you never knew what was gonna happen, you know? Um, and so I'm walking out with my phone up and I go into the room and I see the President of the United States standing behind a buffet of fast food from multiple restaurants. <laughs> And Trump is like, he's a very tall guy. He's like looming and looking at me with this just absolute shit-eating grin. He was so happy, yeah. It was the happiest <laughs> I've ever seen him in like like eight years covering the guy. He's, you know, it just like, look at what I did. Isn't this fucking nuts? And, you know, I walk in the room and the funny thing was like, like, first off, let me tell you, I say I always try to be prepared for a question. I didn't have one. I was at a total loss for words for a second. And you could tell he, he kind of expected us to say something. So there was just like this kind of awkward silence. Um, and I remember I shouted out 
because um, of course, like I'm a reporter, I'm like digging for the soundbite, I'm digging for controversy. I'm like, Mr. President, which do you prefer, McDonald's or Wendy's? Uh, and he's like, I like them all. I like them all as long as they're American. He does. And, and I, yeah. I, I kick myself to this day for not asking like the perfect follow-up like what about chipotle or panda express and and i'm sorry (laughs) i'm sorry to you jordan i'm sorry to you rob i'm sorry to the entire insurgents audience i failed you i i i I did not ask donald trump about chipotle but i did get that video clip where you know he was just like looming over cheeseburgers um and and to this day i mean if i close my eyes i can still see and smell that moment and it really was like the perfect encapsulation of an era uh, an, an era in america you know the 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 less violent yeah. but just deeply weird part of the trump administration yeah in terms of like Chipotle and that, if I recall, he really enjoys those taco bowls from the Trump Hotel. Remember those ones? Yeah, the Cinco yeah, de Mayo. The, I love Mexican Cinco de Mayo tweet. Yeah. So I actually went to Trump Tower that day. So I was, you know, I was basically I'd covered Trump in New York, and when he won, they sent me down to DC. Um, and so, of course, my reaction the second he tweeted the taco bowl photo, I was like, I have to go to Trump Tower and eat this taco bowl. Um, and so I get up there. And, and I guess, like, this was before he was just totally owning it. It was when he still had a little bit of a traditional campaign apparatus. Um, and there had been a controversy over, like, this tweet and, like, was he being disrespectful or not? So they had actually pulled the taco ball off the menu by the time I arrived. Um, but I did have the frozen yogurt at Trump Tower. And let, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. It's fantastic. Okay. It's fantastic. And if you're ever in Trump Tower and you want something to eat, first off, there's a Starbucks where they have like a signed photo of Ivanka, like kissing a grande macchiato. It's something to behold. Um, But they also have great frozen yogurt. Although afterwards, I sort of thought about it and I was like, that might have just been soft serve vanilla ice cream. So it's either the best Froyo I've ever had or like the worst vanilla. And I'm not totally clear. But wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be so Trump to like, not really have Froyo and just like slap the Froyo label on vanilla. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's like the steaks that were like Omaha steaks that they like hustled into Mar-a-Lago and then like put the Trump steak sticker on. I mean, that's, that's, that's the MO. That's the MO of the, of the business side of the Trump org. Hunter, we've gone, we've gone this whole conversation. We've laughed, we've cried, we've shared some, some historic sports moments together. Yes. Now, one thing I got to ask you though, I know we, I wanted to keep, keep you too much longer. Is, is he coming back? Is the big man coming back in 2024? What do you what do you think from someone who's been there in the trenches covering the Trump era? Well, do you so think you he's going to be coming back? So the thing is, like, Hal Steinberger and Brian Cashman had an opportunity to give the big man an extension. And they okay, didn't I was do it, so he's going to be a free agent. Nah. <laughs> and I'm horrified about this. Oh, you, you were asking me about politics? I'm, I'm a little yeah. distracted. I'm sorry. Yeah. I want the big man to come back. What's, yeah. What is the question? Which Trump. one? Which big man though? Trump. <laughs> Donald Donald J. Trump. Do you think do you think he's gonna be coming back in twenty twenty four? What do you think the likelihood is that regardless of whatever legal problems are going on, <laughs> I mean this man has had legal problems for, for decades that seem to just completely uh bounce right off him. Uh do you think that he, he does have a chance to win that uh Republican nomination in twenty twenty four? So, you know, first off, you know, he's every the Trump campaign never stopped. 
Uh, he, you know, he had rallies, I think, just last week. Um, you know, every indication publicly um, is that he's running again. Um, privately, he's reportedly all sorts of, you know, frustrated with DeSantis for sort of biting his style. Um, so I think he pretty clearly is going for it again. And I think that makes a lot of sense because, as you pointed out, like he's in all sorts of legal peril. Right. And um, one of his best potential defenses is, you know, claiming that he's the victim of some kind of political witch hunt. We've seen him do it before. And it's a lot harder to do that if you're not actually, you know, still having a political career. Um and, you know, we've seen, I think in this documents matter, you know, the Justice Department has sort of expressed reluctance to kind of, you know, go at him, uh, you know, closely tied to an election. So I think it really does offer him legal protection. I think he's going for it. And, you know, as we talk about sort of the cult-like tendencies, uh, the fanatical religious element of the MAGA wing, they are completely devoted to him. And, you know... In his own words, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his people would still be with him. And I think in the dynamic of a crowded primary field, the guy who has the, you know, complete and total devotion of, you know, 30-ish percent of the party almost always will emerge victorious. Um, so not only do I think he's, he's going to go for it, I think you got to see him as, you know, the favorite for the Republican nomination. Um, and yeah, so I think, you know, uh, I'm one of these people who kind of thinks that like the 2016 never election never ended and we've just been living it over and over again. Um, and I think, you know, 2016 election chapter three, this time it's personal, is, you know, coming up uh, sooner than we all think. Well, well we will see. Uh, but Hunter, thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people follow you and find more of your work and uh, find The Breach? Um, so you can find The Breach wherever books are sold. That is The Breach, the untold story of the investigation into January 6th by Denver Riggleman with yours truly, Hunter Walker. You can find me on Twitter at Hunter W. Um, and you can find me in the Bronx on Sunday where I'm going to be you know, rooting for 62. You know, he better, he really better chill out till Sunday. Although, I mean, look, I see 63, I see 64. I'm a happy man. Uh, we love the Yankees. We love the Yankees. I'm sorry, I, I'm really, I have ADD and this game was on and this was, I'm sorry if I had trouble staying on topic, but you know, it's a beautiful like day. To. in New, It's a beautiful day in New York City. It's a beautiful, beautiful evening for us. Well, thank well, you so much for joining us. Yeah. You can go give your mom a call back now and talk about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to just go do a victory lap around the house. I appreciate you guys. So you guys brought us a lot of luck. So I, 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 I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to be calling both of you during every okay. playoff game now. <laughs> okay, that's, that's fine. Yeah. Sounds good. Love the sound of your voice. <laughs> <laughs> Later, dudes. Take care. See ya. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>